A road is just a road, but a Jeep SUV isn't just an SUV. Come see for yourself at the Jeep Start Something New sales event. During Owner Appreciation Month, finance get $3,750 total cash allowance on select 2020 Grand Cherokee Laredo 4x4 models and dealer stock the longest. On oldest 20% inventory of 2020 Jeep Cherokee Laredo models as of 1-3-2020 and dealer stock. Financing for well-qualified buyers through Chrysler Capital. Not all buyers will qualify. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery by 2-3-2020. Jeep is a registered trademark. The episode you are about to listen to was originally aired on June 25th, 2014. For more content like this, please visit thereallyrealdeal.com and subscribe to our newsletter. Love Talk Radio. They say this cat brother Craig is a bad brother. Hush your mouth. But I'm talking about hatchet. Then we can dig it. The Really Real Deal with Brother Craig the Hatchet Man every Wednesday afternoon from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern on WLEE 990 AM. Who is the Hatchet Man? Where is the Hatchet Man? Who is this Hatchet Man and where can we find him? Okay, okay, Brother Craig is the Hatchet Man and you can find him on 990 WLEE. The Really Real Deal with Brother Craig the Hatchet Man on 990 AM WLEE. And now, no more water, you guys. Well, hello there, America. It is that time again, folks. Yes, indeed, it is. Your friendly neighborhood hatchet man, Brother Craig, is here with another fantastic edition of The Really Real Deal. And, folks, we have a really real deal uh, treat for you today. Uh, This is a wonderful, wonderful lady. We just had her on my Central Virginia uh, live AM broadcast uh, at WLEE. Uh, which you out there in, uh, in in Blog Talk land, you can get it at WLEE990.am. Uh, we're on from 5 to 6 Eastern Time. And uh, we just had a, a, a little bit of Anita Dittman, uh, who wrote this book along with Jan Markell, Trapped in Hitler's Hell. And so we, uh, we're now going to have a, uh, a full uh, interview with Ms. Dittman, and uh, it, it, it's, it's really a fantastic story, folks, a, a story of survival. Uh, it, I mean, there's been a lot of books written about the Holocaust, but uh, this one is a real, real treat. I mean, as a, as a young girl, uh, Miss Dittman, uh, from the age of five, and, uh, oh, is Miss Dittman on with us now? Yes, she is. <laughs> oh, hi, Miss Dittman. Yeah, it's nice being back. It's uh, it's so nice, and I was just telling the, the uh, Blog Talk audience here, we, we're on a national audience now, and I was just telling them how wonderful you were on our local Central Virginia uh, program at WLEE, and of course we, we don't didn't have time there to get into everything, uh, but time is no issue now, so as long as you would Good. like to, as long as you would like to <laughs> talk, we, we can talk, and so... Okay. But, you could um, just ask yeah. me questions. Oh, great, great. Well, yeah. well, you and sure. Jan Markell have, have done a wonderful job with the book, and uh, and you know, and, and as you as you start out, you you start out with uh, you know how your your father, who was an Aryan, and uh, your mother uh, being Jewish, uh, the, because of the pressure, uh, 
that that were placed on him, uh, he he couldn't stand that pressure, and so he caved and left you left you your sister and your mother, and you were almost uh, had been blessed with a, a Christian friend that was going to try to get you all out of the country, but uh, the war broke out and. Uh, your, your passports never made it in the mail, and then Hitler closed the border down. And at that point, you and your family were trapped in Hitler's hell. And so, you know, from there, just, I mean, you, just go ahead and, and tell the audience, uh, you know, maybe how uh, some of the uh, markers of what was a, about to come, how early did you perhaps start noticing them prior to the start of the war? Yes. Oh, yes, yes. Hitler came into power when I was five and a half years old. And that's when the scene of my life began. Before then, I lived a very ordinary life. Um, and uh, we lived in a nice place. My father had a very prestigious job. But then when Hitler came to power, things changed. And now, my, uh, shortly after Hitler took over, my father left us. <coughs> there are many different other reasons, too, but... The main reason was that he just did not want to be tied down with a, with a Jewish woman. My, in Oh, it was later on when I was in high school, in a Christian high school, when I was about 11. Um, the, a wonderful minister, you mentioned him briefly just now, a wonderful minister came into our life, and he... Uh, took us under his wings, and my mother ultimately uh, became a Christian. But to Hitler, it didn't matter. She was a Jew, and that was it. And, of course, he persecuted the Christians, too. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, people and, often forget uh, that along with 6 million Jews, 5 million Christians were killed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. People, they people always often say, forget that. Yeah. The, they always say in the country where the Jews are being persecuted, the Christians follow right after. And that's true. Uh, excuse me. I had a sip of water. Um, <clears throat> yeah, this man was a fantastic person. Not only a wonderful preacher and teacher, but he really, truly lived like Christ. And he had a great love for the Jewish people. And he invited us to come and visit. And then ultimately, after a few months of Bible study in church, my mother became a Christian, and a really a true Christian. And it kind of intensified my walk with Christ, too. <coughs> my sister somehow never committed herself to anything. She just pretended on the surface. But it was her visa that our pastor had arranged with an organization in Berlin that would help us to leave Germany. And it was her visa that arrived first, and she left on August 31st to go to England, and my mother and I promised her that we'd soon be reunited, and, but that wasn't possible because the next day on September uh, 1939, um, the war started, and uh, the borders were closed, no foreign mail was allowed into the country, and no traffic was allowed out of the country and my mother's and my visas were lost and um, so now we know that <coughs> excuse me that we were facing a very very bleak future 
but we just trusted in the Lord. And I remember our pastor calling us in sometimes after he, he realized what happened. He said, you know, I've tried so hard to get you out of the country, but I guess it must be God's will. And he said to my mother and me, I have a feeling that the two of you are meant to be through, go through this so that someday you can witness for, for the Lord. And I've been doing wow. this now for 35 years. <clears throat> oh, wow. Excuse me, That's hold on. <clears throat> I'm trying to overcome a viral infection. <laughs> oh, okay. So, well, Will, I'll try not to hold you too long. I know on oh, no, no, the program okay. you It'll said you, you had uh, something going on with your throat. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. I've had troubles with my sinus and ears and everything. But nevertheless, I'll do my very best, and I'll probably clear up. I'm sucking oh, okay. on the cough drop again. But it was yeah. so awesome how what Pastor predicted, that someday we would mm -hmm. be witnessing. And we did. And here you are. And, and here you are witnessing. And that's yeah. after 35 years of, of witnessing. Now, you uh, earlier you spoke about, and, uh, and, and, and it was really beautiful to read it, how you would just had a passion for ballet and that yeah. you were a very good ballerina far above your age group and how people loved you. And, how, and, and connect that with the fact that prior to the rise of Hitler that Germany – was a, a Christian nation, and indeed, I mean, the, the German people, other than the 12 years of uh, Nazi rule, have a really, really fantastic reputation. I mean, it, it used to be a saying that a person was as honest as a German. That used to be a yeah. saying. And, uh, and so you go from this beautiful little girl who's this ballerina, very talented, and getting all this applause, uh, uh -huh. and, and, and share that story and how that led you uh, shortly thereafter to your conversion uh, to Christ. Yes. Yeah, I love to talk about it. Mm. I get very emotional about it, so forgive me. But oh. um, it was so interesting because I remember <clears throat> my ballet teacher used to be a prima ballerina in her young years, and now she was retired. And she noticed mm -hmm. I had that beautiful God-given talent, and she said, I will groom you so that someday you will be doing what I was doing. And she said, it's a wonderful life. And she listed all the perks that I would have. And at the very end, she would say, you know, people will literally worship you. Well, of course, it was very appealing. But then the next day after my first solo dance, I was not quite seven. I was still six years old. I had this wonderful review and the people loved what they were doing, but they said, but the German people no longer wish to be entertained by a Jew. And right there and then, all my hopes and dreams just crumbled into a thousand pieces. But it was only a couple of months or so that I came to realize during my conversion that God did not want me to be worshipped. He wanted me to worship him and to live that way. And I know then also that God has a way. And I, when I speak to young people, I talk about it especially. God has a very unique way to scoop up all the shattered fragments of our hopes and dreams and mold them into a plan of his own, a plan vastly different than ours, but much more conducive to our spiritual growth. And he did that for me. Yeah, and, and it's amazing at such a young age 
that you had the maturity to uh, accept that and, and to understand it. Yeah, well, I had to grow up very fast. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it was such a wonderful moment for me that after a few months of attending Bible study in church, my mother became a Christian. And like I said, it wasn't just how beautiful ma this man preached and taught, but how he lived. He had a, a great, great love for the Jewish people. And there were many people in Bible study that were in the same boat as my mother. Their husbands had left them. They were raising their children under difficult circumstances, just like my mother did. And they kind of formed a bond with each other. It was really nice. And well, how yeah, common was that? Well, because that's a that's a problem in America today. Uh, fatherlessness. Men are not being men. Men are not honoring their covenant with their wives. Uh, the, the covenant says through through um, good and bad, through, I mean, you know, for better or for worse, through good health, through bad health, for richer, for poorer. But it That's doesn't the covenant. always, yeah. And but that it was, was that more than just your family, but was there a, a pattern yeah. in Germany at oh, the time? Yeah. Yeah, it is a pattern because actually Hitler declared a relationship or a marriage between a Gentile and a, a, um, a Jew, a race disgrace, and many marriages uh, were dis dissolved. Some, some uh, Aryan fathers and mothers stayed with their Jewish spouse, but many mm -hmm. did not. And uh, I know if my father would have stayed with us, my mother would have never had to go to the camp that she had to go. Mm -hmm. And uh, but uh, that's the way things were. And you know, my sister was gone. I couldn't even tell my. I couldn't trust my father anymore because he was. He sided with the Nazis. And um, when he came back one time, and then he. Uh, came to see us, and that was before my sister left, actually. And we, my mother said, you know, it's okay with your dad. He has visiting privileges, but don't talk about the Nazis. And when he starts talking about the Nazis, just listen. Don't say anything. Because she said, I'm sorry to say this, but you can't trust your dad because he's on the side of the Nazis. Mm -hmm. So when my sister left for England, for quite some time, I couldn't tell my father that she was in England. And, of course, the correspondence between my sister and us was cut off. So when my father asked me, well, where is Hella? I said, I don't know. She was supposed to go to England, but we have had no uh, confirmation. And it was true. I didn't lie about it. And later on, however, our pastor found a uh, man in the Netherlands who would uh, kind of accept letters from my sister, and then he would take the envelope off and then uh, uh, send them to us. But that was cut off, and the Nazis went into the Netherlands. So, mm. But it was um, uh, my father remarried, and when my mother, one fine day, as we were going to the factory, because I, as I mentioned before, that I was told 
that I couldn't to attend school anymore and was drafted in very heavy into very heavy factory. Um, yeah, and you and you write that you had to lift 100 pound stacks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, and, and you were so just a 15 year old girl. And I'm small, but I've always been an athlete. And I said, the Lord, whatever God permitted for ha would would happen to me, He would always prepare me ahead somehow. Mm -hmm. He gave me a very, very agile body, and I was a I was one of the top athletes in my class. And God prepared me for that because in the in the secular schools, uh, they emphasized physical education because you know Hitler wanted to have an extra strong, healthy uh, German people. But I was grateful for that that they had that that I had that training because I no longer had ballet, so at least I had this. And God gave me the strength and the muscles to carry wow. the heavy, now, heavy weight. Now, Miss Dittman, do you do do you see parallels today in what's going on in America? A type of tribalism and pitting one group against another. Of course, now it won't be quite so drastic as saying that uh, Jews and Gentiles can't marry. But right. still, there there is a divisiveness where it's it's male against female with the phony war on women. It's black against white. It's you yep. know everyone against Hispanic. It's young against old. It's it's uh, working yeah, it's class terrible. against yeah. um, the uh, the affluent class. Yeah, and yes, and unfortunately, what I also see is a weakening in the churches. Uh, and that's what happened. That's how Hitler got into the churches during Nazi time. There's a real good book that was written about that called Day of No Return. And uh, this man escaped from Germany. He was a, a Lutheran pastor, but you can probably find it on the Internet. I think it's still in, in print. Oh, okay, but, the Day of No Return. Yeah, and it, it tells how the Nazis marched, literally during church services, marched into the churches and sometimes pastors, especially the, the the faithful pastors, like my pastor too, they were picked up and killed and take or taken to the ovens. So, but somehow my pastor was miraculously protected, and I'm so grateful because how we needed him. It he he was such a source of strength for me after they picked up my mother. And that's what I want to talk about too. Uh, I was my mother and I both worked in the same factory, and then one time we were separated. She worked in a different place, and I worked in a different place. And one morning, when we were both getting ready to go our se separate places to work, there was a knock at the door. And because now we did not live in that little suburb anymore, we had moved to a inner city Jewish settlement house. In, uh, and that's, in, they took you from in, affluence that you had earned to yeah. a, a forced government ghetto. Yeah, and so that morning, that knock at the door, we knew the Nazis were coming to pick up somebody. It was the 7th of January, 1944. It Early in the morning, must have been about 6 o'clock or so, we were just about ready to get the streetcar to get to the factory. Yes, two men in SS uniform marched in, and this time they picked up my mother. And I had very little time with her, but she had to 
uh, fill out a form where she would list all the items in the one room that we occupied because where we lived, we were four families in one apartment, so each family living in one room. And the room that we had uh, was full of furniture, of course, and so they then looked at the form that my mother had filled out, and sure enough, they put red labels on every table, on every chair, on bed, you name it. And the only thing they didn't label was my bed, my personal belongings, and my clothes. And I was informed that the next day, the authorities would come, they would pick up every item that had been labeled with a red label, and it would be taken to the um, warehouse of at the, um, not the, uh, I'm sorry, the Nazi warehouse downtown. And if I wanted anything back, I would have to go purchase it back. And of course, I didn't earn enough money. It was kind of a slave labor labor salary. I just had enough to buy my measly um, rations and uh, the streetcar ride, and that was it. And oh yeah, I'd pay the rent. So. Oh, you I had to pay rent in the ghetto. They took you from your nice home. Oh yeah. And you oh, have yeah. one room in an apartment, and you have to pay for that. Oh yeah, sure. And wow. it, um, but then my mother had enough time that morning to hand me my father's phone number. My father had remarried, and he lived in a different city. And so um, I, but you know, when I let my mother call, uh, when my mother passed the, the, uh, the, the door into the old synagogue, the only one, the only synagogue that had not been burned in 1938. When she stepped in there and I had to say goodbye to her, I was so grateful that she had become a Christian, that someday in, in heaven we would see each other again. And our pastor always thought, said to us, to both of us before she was picked up, he said to us, you know, Hilda and Anita, even if a death camp is the ultimate for you, remember death is but the door to eternal life, and then you will be reunited someday. But it was tough, so I was only 16, going on 17, wow. and uh, I did get in touch with my father. He came the next day, and he uh, went to the Gestapo and conferred with them, and I don't want to go into detail. And um, that I could keep the furniture, and I was very grateful. Only my mother's personal things they picked up, like her bed and the wardrobe and, and things like that. But I was able to wow. at least keep some of the furniture. So now, many... Wa- yeah, oh, go, go, ahead. go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So many wonderful things happened during the time that I was still not in the camp yet and that my mother was in Camp Theresienstadt, and oddly enough, they were allowed to receive packages every now and then. However, sometimes the Nazi guards would help themselves to food out of those packages. So I had to make, I had to make a, a pledge, so to speak. I talked to God, and I said, Lord, 
help me now. I don't have money to buy food on the black market as the rich people could. Help me to share my meager uh, rations with my mother, but keep me strong so that I can go on working, so that I can go on sending food to her. And he did that for me for seven whole months. I ate so few things. And in the morning, I would have a cup of imitation coffee and a piece of bread. And then I ate nothing all day. And people at work asked me, you know, are you on a reducing diet? You don't need it. No, I said, uh, it's just, yeah, I'm okay because I didn't want the word to get out and get to my mother so she wouldn't worry. And um, then God kept me strong in spite of this very, very meager diet. It was just miraculous. I was strong. I had enough energy to work. Ten hours a day, I um, was able to uh, succumb to... I did not succumb to any kind of... um, diseases that were around, I no flu, no nothing. I never lost an ounce of weight. I was slender to begin with, but I never lost an ounce of weight during all this very, very stringent starvation diet. The Lord was with me, as he has been in everything. He's always been by me. Go ahead. Yeah. And at one point, uh, among other things, I always sent my mother the dark German rye bread in those packages. And she was clever. She could write a little card 10 days, you know, after we received the package and uh, an open card and where she would list all the items that she thanked me for, which showed me that she received them. Nothing had been stolen out of the packages. And one time, oh, I had been alone now, probably six, six and a half months. I decided not to, one morning, I decided not to get her the dark bread. That The German rye bread is very dark and very solid. In fact, so solid you could almost sit on it without making a dent into it. And um, I bought Zweibach. I went to a bake shop and got Zweibach, which is toast, and packed it up and sent it to her. And I thought, why am I doing this? Is my the starvation getting into my brain? Only to find out <laughs> 10 days later that my mother had been stricken with dysentery. It's a very dangerous uh, digestive disease, and she could not eat the dark bread, and she had literally knelt down by her cot at night and prayed to the Lord to, you know, inspire me to send us Weiberg. And I said, wow, what a hot line to heaven. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. And, and so and that prayer, uh, and you did exactly, not knowing why you were doing it. Yeah. But you did. And it, it. was, yeah, and... And then when I and but then she finally recovered and I continued the the um, dark bread. Well, it was now seven months after my mother had left. This was now August. She left in January, and on the ninth um, of August, I came home, and I had a summons in my mailbox from the Gestapo telling me that to stand in line the next morning at a certain time at the main railroad station, and I'll be shipped off with many others, probably way over 300, to an unknown destination. But at least I had time. And again, another miracle. I prayed. I said, Lord, show me what I could do with my mother. Show me what I must do. I had all evening to do this. And God inspired me to go to a bake shop, get a... a, uh, that one of those dark pumpernickels, 
and that had a label on one end, a bright red label, and then I brought it home. I made a, I took the label off very carefully, took a knife, and made an indentation deep into the bread, and then I t wrote my mother a note, not to worry that I, for a while I won't be able to send her any more food, and I'll be gone for a little while, but don't worry, and all those things, you know. My mother was smart enough to know. But, and then when I had put the note in there, I put the label back on, and then I called a friend of mine, an Aryan friend, and asked her, and I said, could you please come over here tonight and take this bread that I have, uh, I've, you know, gotten from my mother? I will wrap it. And if you could mail it to me, because I won't be there tomorrow. And I told her, and so she came over that night. And as I was wrapping this bread, I and it looked like I had never, ever taken the label off, I prayed, and I said, God, bless this loaf of bread and help that it does not fall under the hands of a Nazi guide. And because if they would have found the note, they would have killed my mother. And I didn't find that out until 11 months later that that loaf of bread had arrived for the very first time totally covered with a thick layer of fluffy green mold covering the entire bread. God put it there to protect the bread. And my mother was so starved that she had scraped it all off. And by that time, every bit was edible. And that's how she found the note when she sliced the bread. And I thought, isn't God fantastic? I mean, we have a God so great. It's it's overwhelming. Wow. That I mean, that's that's powerful stuff that I mean every time you guys pray it works out and you're you know hundreds of miles apart from one another and uh, yeah. you know and, and you, you mentioned earlier uh, how when your mother became a Christian after you became a Christian at age seven and your mother becoming a Christian shortly thereafter and her presence in walking the Christian walk along with the the powerful example of the minister the minister did yeah. just preached the word, the minister yes. was the embodiment of the word, a, a man yeah. who walked in a manner just like Christ. And yes, so exactly. That, now, if you had to just do it on your own, without your mother, without the minister, uh, how different would that have been? And, you know, and, and speak to ministers and parents today uh, as far as what does it mean when that example is set by the parent and by the community leader, be, be it a minister or who, whoever is in a position of leadership over others. Yeah. It, did you ask me a question? Yes. No. Uh, yeah. The, uh, <laughs> How would the, it have been the, if this the, pastor had the not power, been? The power oh. of the example of your mother and your minister in your life. And, oh, yeah. And, and what, what people need to do today? Well, I want to tell you what I tell my young audiences when I speak to young kids. Number one, be bold. Don't be afraid to let people know that, you know, that you're a Christian because I said yes, you might be laughed at, you might even be, maybe even beaten up for it. But remember, you know, the 
the people that you're trying to please are not worth it. You know, it's better sometimes to lose some friends over it because Christ is your only real friend. And I said, and keep the faith. Keep the faith, I tell them, no matter what it costs you. And my mother, after she, even before she became a Christian, she was a very good example for me because she taught me many things that her parents taught her. And the one was when you are in deep trouble, either you're sick or you have great problems in your life, don't get swallowed up with self-pity. Look around you and uh, see if there are people that are worse off than you and then you reach out and help them. And, you know, I still do that. There was many, many different things that, that she taught me even before she became saved. But once she was saved, it was different. And it was so wonderful when finally we had something to share because when I was first saved and I was telling my sister and my mother, they just kind of shook their heads and brushed it aside as a childish fantasy. And so this time, and my mother used to say to me often, oh, Anita, why did I wait so long? She said, you had it as a little child. I said, mother, it was the Lord's timing. He had to wait until you were ready f for that. And wow. I, as a child, was ready just a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. And you even were ready to stand up to people. Uh, you write about how in the factory, uh, yeah. Back when you and your mother were at the same factory, how they uh, would they told you not to go and eat with the Jews, and yeah. how you and how the the man that told you that he was he was also flirting with you at the same time. Oh yeah. But yeah, after you was. stood up to him, he stopped yeah, flirting with you. Now that's a powerful story. Yeah. Well, you know, he was my boss, and he, I was a blonde little, very Aryan-looking little girl. Um, that appealed to him, and so he took me out of the factory and took me to his office. And then when I was working in the office, um, he found out that in lunchtime I would go over to the Jewish locker room and have lunch with my mother and all the Jewish people that I worked with before. And he found out about it, and he threatened me that if I would continue that, that he would... Uh, report me to the Gestapo. And I said to him, Mr. Goertz, if it bothers you that I do that, that I go there, I wish to be released from my job in the fact in that office, and I would rather work hard in the factory. And he looked at me, he said, didn't you hear what I said? I'll report you to the Gestapo. And I said, go ahead, do it. I said, I have a right to eat with my mother in the Jewish locker room because it's your people that don't really want me there. So he left me alone after that, and he no longer flirted with me. He had a very pretty wife. I don't know why he had to flirt with me anyway. And um, <laughs> it, uh, <laughs> but yeah, but um, you earned his you earned his respect. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, we have a yeah. saying in German. I don't know if I can translate it correctly, that a brave person is even respected by his enemies. Mm. By, by, yeah, no, the brave person is respected, yeah, even by the enemy. 
but the coward is despised by both enemy and friend. Mm -hmm. And it's true. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, well, you my mother was my mother was horrified when I told her she, you know, I was always that submissive, submissive little girl, and all of a sudden, that submissive, submissive little girl grew up and stood up for her faith and for her privileges, and. Uh, then finally the Gestapo came one day and they took all of the Jewish employees away from the factory and then mm -hmm. transferred us to a new factory. The, the job was equally hard. But he was, this boss was very sad that he lost all his Jewish employees. Of course, you know, he was a, he had a great bargain in a way in us. He didn't have to pay us very much and yet got the same kind of labor out of us. But he... When I said goodbye, I'd finished up all the work in the office, and so everything was done. He thanked me for it, and he said to me, and he even told that story about me standing up to him, to a SS man that was sitting in his office talking to him. And he told it, and, and my boss thought that was kind of cute, kind of funny. And they both started laughing, and I thought to myself, <laughs> this is oh. weird. Yeah, yeah, that's, well, that's, that's respect. Uh, yeah. Now, t tell us about your escape. From the camp? Yes. Okay. Well, I was want to say, I was drafted in, uh, on the 10th of, no, the 9th of um, August of 1944, and it was a camp for, all people that were there had one Aryan and one Jewish uh, parent. We were about men and women together, probably a little over 300 to begin with. The women lived in the filthy old cow barn, and the, um, uh, the cow barn that had never been cleaned out but covered with fresh straw. We had the toilet facility was a ditch, an open ditch. Oh, and wow. uh, Yeah. And the washing facility was a little enamel pan per person, and you had to share that with several other ones. After you know one, after you're done, then the next one filled it with water that was on the outside of the barn. And the men lived in a horse stable not too far from us, and there were about two married people in this camp, but they weren't allowed to live together. But they, they worked together. We were marched off early in the morning at four o'clock after getting a cup of, inst of um, imitation coffee and a piece of bread, and then they loaded us up with digging equipment, picks, shovels, and spades, and we were marched off, and we worked in the burning sun for about, and this was a very hot, hot fall with very little rain. Um, now, was this where your friend was also, who's now, you were telling us earlier today, he's now 91? Yeah, Christian. Yeah, and he he made honor to his name, Christian. He was a Christian. Oh. Yeah, that we meet we met in the camp. It was not right at the beginning, but toward more toward the end. But mm -hmm. yeah, and so then when the the ditches were about, we were digging ditches, and the ditches were supposed to serve as tank traps when the Russians would come in, and we had. Um, after uh, 10 hours of hard work digging ditches, we marched home. Then we stood in line for our watery soup. And then we were given a piece of bread. 
that had to last for the next morning. Of course, we were hungry, but and we would we had to hide the bread that the rats wouldn't eat it. So then uh, we had to contend with the winter elements, and we worked in the in the woods, in the forest. The book does tells it all in detail. So after a few months of doing that work, um, we were found, we found out that as soon as our work was completed, we would be shipped to Auschwitz to be cremated. So no matter how tough it was, no matter how hungry we were, how cold, no matter how the circumstances that surrounded us, not on our bodies, we were just grateful we were in Auschwitz yet. So one day on the 23rd of January of 1945, we were all standing in formation. We were all marched off, and we worked. We walked all night long. And at one point, I could have had a chance to escape, but I'm glad I didn't because ultimately I would have been killed. So um, we marched and marched and marched as we thought we would collapse. And then they got us to another place in a village where we did ridiculous but very heavy labor. And I, my shoes wore out, and I was given a pair of shoes with very heavy wooden soles and rough tops. And since we couldn't wash our bodies anymore or our clothes, and somehow through the rubbing of the rough tops and my heel, not the bottom heel, but around the back of the heel, uh, I rubbed a blister and dirt got in because, you know, our clothes was dirty, our bodies were dirty, and there was no, no medical help. I didn't even have a Band-Aid, and pretty soon that became infected. My foot started swelling. The lymph glands in my groin started uh, getting bigger and painful, and I felt feverish. But I couldn't let anybody know except my closest friends because there were people in our camp of our own kind. They would squeal on us so that they got better ration cards and so forth. But now what would um, there be squeal about? What would the squeal be if they would sick? tell them They would tell them that I was sick. And you see, if the Nazis heard that word, they knew you weren't fit to work anymore, and so they'd either club you to death or shoot you on the spot. Oh, wow. And even though I knew my final destination would be Auschwitz, you know, the inside of me there was this little pilot light that still burned full of hope mm -hmm. that I would survive. So I only told my friend about it. And then one day when we were coming home... Christian? No, it was a, a lady friend. I had some lady girlfriends, too. Um, no, I didn't tell him either. And uh, so I, um, uh, that night, it was the, the 10th of February of 1945, we noticed that the villagers in that village where our new camp was were running fast. And the Sky, the, the, the night sky in the distance, the horizon was lit up bright red, and there were strange sounds and strange smells and vibrations in, uh, under us. And so we saw that that one night the villagers were all leaving, and uh, they were running with their wagons piled high with their belongings. 
and we asked, we want somebody stepped out and said, what's happening? And he said, the Russians will be here in the morning, and we're fleeing from the Russians. And of course, we had heard some bad things about the Russians too, and since our heads weren't shaved, and we didn't have burned in numbers, would they be our new persecutors, or would they be um, our liberators? So we knew we had something has to happen. So <clears throat> that morning then, the next day on the 11th of February, all the women were ordered to climb on horse, uh, on wagons that were pulled by horses, chauffeured by Polish prisoners of war, and they, um, we were whisked off, and we waved goodbye to the men, not knowing what would happen to them. And it, and I won't go into detail. I want people to read it because Jan did a remarkable job to describe it. God literally used angels. I mean, angels in human human beings as angels. He sent us those that morning on the 11th of February. It was still kind of somewhat dark outside, and God helped five of us to escape because we prayed all night. We knew something was going to happen the next day, and uh, when the, the morning came and we had to climb on these horse wagons, we knew it was that... very cold. Very cold, yeah. And yeah, I read I was, And I was glad that we were taken by horse carts that morning. So, uh, however, when we got into our new camp, the, the iron gate swung open, and then the, I won't say any more about it, but God literally answered our prayer because the five of us couldn't sleep. Hardly anybody slept that night. And we held hands all night, and we prayed that if it was God's will, would he help us to be delivered from our persecutors, and he did. And he yeah. did. And you and you write beautifully, Miss Dittman, that for every evil Nazi, that literally there was an angel. Yes. To help yes. to help you along your way. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And even as a child, when kids were beating me up and doing nasty things, he would always send some child, like my friends who took me to church, that would be a friend and would, you know hold me up in hope that there are good people, too. And if people would just look for that, we all see the demons, but if we would just look for those angels, they're there, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, it was just, it was so awesome. I mean, only, I always said to my friends uh, that I escaped with, I said, only a God like ours would stage an escape like God did that morning. And yeah. some people that morning did not get away, and some of them lost their lives. But it was so awesome. And then finally, when we were uh, far, far away from our persecutors, we found refuge in the home of one of the in-laws of one of my friends that escaped with me. And <clears throat> there, my infection in my body just raged through my body. My temperature went to about 104 and I had to be hospitalized, so my two friends that uh, were with me, the other two went some other place. Anyway, they hauled me off in a kitty cart over cobblestone-covered streets to a nearest hospital there. 
in the city of Bautzen in the province of Saxony. And, of course, all hospitals were run by Nazis, so a Nazi nurse received us. And, of course, God had sent that for my protection, too. I looked like my father's side of the family. They were all blondes. And my hair was had grown back from the after you know after a while I lost it for a while in the camp but then it grew back it was long and blonde and it was so amazing how this nurse that received me was a super Nazi she greeted us with uh, Heil Hitler and then she babbled on about this wonderful leader of our country and what he has done for us. And uh, I kept quiet, and so did my friends. And then she went out and got a scissors. She had to cut off my knee highs because my leg was so swollen. And she said, well, we'll have to keep you here. And he, she said, I just want to tip you off. We are understaffed and overcrowded in the hospital because most of the doctors are in the battlefield. So we nurses have to do much of it, too. And I may not be able to find a doctor right away. And I said, it's okay. So she saw that I had uh, a swollen foot and the fever and everything. And it wasn't until about, oh, maybe five, six days later that a doctor came, a lady doctor. And she literally became my guardian angel because under wow. my first, she came in and she said, you know, we're going to have to cut holes into your foot to drain the pus because we don't have any antibiotics. They gave me sulfur, and I was allergic to it. And so they said, we don't have any other antibiotics, so we'll just have to cure it by letting the wounds drain. And then also we have a black ointment that we put on that is made from fish and sulfur, and we'll put that on and see what, what happens. But nothing did happen, and when they cut me open under that first anesthesia, I was, the anesthesia was ether, and this nurse was my anesthesiast, and she gave me the anesthesia, and when I woke up, the doctor the was the nurse. Yeah. Oh, okay. She said to the doctor, doctor, didn't that little girl ever talk a lot? And I thought to myself inside, oh, oh, well, you see, what she did to me was horrible. But you see, there was a medal for every Nazi that would kill a Jew, and she took that upon herself because evidently under the influence of ether, I revealed who I was, where I came from. And she really did excuse me, literally, the dirty work, and I, it isn't all in the book, but it's horrible what she did. And uh, some of it is pretty graphic what she did. And she tried to kill me. And as a result, I ended up with three more surgeries. But the doctor could not possibly have been a Nazi, or she would have never bothered to operate again. She would have let me die. Mm -hmm. But their very last surgery, the fourth one, was very, very tricky. And I was given only a 50-50 chance that they could keep my leg because the infection had gone up into the thigh. But the Lord prevailed, and I have both legs. I have very ugly, very ugly large uh, scars because there wasn't enough 
medical supplies, and so they couldn't sew them shut. And uh, but you know, I'm a swimmer, and I always was self-conscious when I would have a swimsuit that people would notice. And my mother said, "Just be grateful, and when you look at those scars, think of them as your beauty marks." because they reveal to you that the Lord can perform miracles against all odds. A nurse that tried to kill me, no antibiotic, and yet I survived, and I never lost my leg. And an angel poor doctor. And, yes, and what was good, too, is after that last, the fourth surgery, this nurse was removed from my case and sent to a uh, another part in the hospital where she would have a more prestigious job. My doctor arranged that and so that the nurse wouldn't turn her in and say, you know, she's a Jew lover. And then one day, I had just had surgery two years prior, two days prior, and my girlfriend, my best friend, came to me and she said, Anita, let me see your wounds. And when she saw my wounds, she was horrified. She said, how can God do this to you? I said, God didn't. This is a result of what people did to me. She said, yeah, but, you know, you've always been faithful to him. I said, honey, there's a purpose. I said, God never has permitted anything in my life without a purpose. And I reminded her of Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good. And I said, remember when we used to recite that in the corner of the barn when we would read our Bibles? Mm-hmm. I said, I got, and everything is working for our good. I said, who knows? I said, maybe someday these open wounds will be my protection, not knowing what lay ahead of me. And it was finally, after about six weeks flat on my back, I had to learn to walk all over again. And my friend would come every day. And on the fourth day, the sirens howled and the Russians had come to town. And when they finally came into the town, um, fought their way into the town, they immediately came to the hospital and all patients had had been taken to the air raid shelter. And there was one big, huge room with men, women, children, everybody in there. And at one point, they were the Russians came in and started raping patients, nurses, doctors, whoever. And at one point, two Russian soldiers pulled me off my cot that I shared with two other women, threw me on a mattress on the floor, and then they were going to help themselves to me. I was 17 then. I'm one of those, (laughs) in modern times, they would probably think I'm a bit wacky, but I was very innocent. And... uh, I was so horrified when they looked at me, and I prayed inside of me, Lord, Lord, have mercy. And when they saw the bandage, the stained bandage, they, the Russians might have thought that I was faking. So the, 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 the one of them, another nurse, asked, was told by the Russian soldiers to go and come and unwrap the bandage, and when, lo and behold, when she unwrapped the bandage, the Russians were standing there looking at me with grimacing faces because the pus squirted out of those wounds like a geyser, and it, I grossed them out so bad they took off. Oh. 
And what so it was just like you told your friend, huh, that yeah, these, these yeah. scars yeah. might have a purpose later in my life. Exactly. Wow. Not only my life, but my, my dignity and my femininity. I mean, to me, to, it would be the most horrifying thing that could happen to a woman. Yes. So then what was so amazing, as time passed on, we were down in the basement for about a week or so, and temporarily the Russians were driven out by the Germans, and I was limping into the outer hall of the air raid shelter, and there on a mattress in the corner, and I only had a candle to light my way, I saw a woman weeping, and I came a little closer, and I saw that it was the same nurse that had tried to kill me. I knew God wanted me to go and comfort her, but I couldn't. I couldn't. I prayed. I said, Lord, I know what you want me to do, but I can't. I said, please. Let me have the same love in my heart that you had when they nailed you to the cross and you said, Father, forgive them. Help me to have that. And he did. And I was able to sit down beside her on the mattress and she put her head on my shoulder and I put my arms around her and she wept bitterly. And between sobs, she said, that told me that she had been raped many times. I tell you, I cried with her because I realized what I had been spared from, and I felt bad for her. Only with God's love in my heart was I able to do that. But, you know, alone, I alone probably would have never been able to do that. Wow. But it's so great what God does. And wow. At a, one point, the nurse... That's a powerful testimony. Yes, go and ahead. And at one point the nurse pushed herself away from me and she looked at me in horror and she said, how can you comfort me? Didn't you realize I tried to kill you? I said, I know, but I forgive you for Christ's sake and with his help I forgive you. Well, then the Russians came back and all the ambulatory patients were removed from the hospital to a different place. And then I was told one day I need to go home. And I stood out there. It was about the third week in April. I had been in a, hospitalized for about eight weeks or so. And I looked up there. I had no crutch. I had no cane. The doctor told me that I wouldn't walk normally for about at least a year. Well, the Lord performed a miracle, and I could walk fairly good on the day that I was relieved. But when they said I need to go home, I said, Lord, I have no home. You know that. And wherever you will be with me, that's where my, my home will be. And God did not send me on a smooth road. It was a rather rough journey with a lots of trials and lots of horrible events. But he was with me every step of the way. And I read something very powerful in my devotional that safety is not the absence of danger but the presence of God. And it's true. It was that way then, and it still is that way. Wow. Safety is not the absence of danger, but the presence of God. Exactly. Wow. And it was. It protected me from... Uh, I had a passport that I received in a little town in Sudetenland that would take me through Czechoslovakia. Um, the war had not ended yet completely, but I told that my mother's camp had been liberated by the Russians. 
And I got a passport in three different languages that would state that I'm a victim of Nazism, I've been persecuted, and I'm en route to Theresienstadt. And that passport fit nicely in one of my pant pockets. And so one day, I took off, and I didn't know where to go, but the Lord sent, you know, I said, Lord, I don't know, show me the way, and he did. And many, many wonderful people passed my, my path, and the book states it too, that helped me along, and when I finally, the war was over, and I reached my mother's camp, I had another obstacle to climb, where the steps of the building would, where I would find out had my mother survived or not. And I was very thrilled when I found out she had survived. We hadn't seen each other for 18 months, and for 11 months we had no contact with each other. And that's when I found out about the black bread. And then from there on we were taken to Riber in Theresienstadt for about, I don't know how many weeks, and then we were transported off by uh, British army trucks to a uh, refugee camp in Bavaria where we stayed for about 11 or so months. And then since we couldn't go to England because of England's uh, financial situation, we signed up with the, the ACCR, the American Christian Committee for Refugees. And uh, we started sailing for America on the 7th of June of 1946, and for 11 days we bounced around on a very, very rough water. And when we came to the day where we were going to be docking in uh, Ellis Island, we all came down in the morning early. And when the boat passed the Statue of Liberty, I tell you, all nine passengers were on the deck, and there was no dry eye. It was so awesome. It's something that that completely, even yet, it, it overwhelms me to talk about it because and everybody else felt the same way. Finally, we had dreamed of this for the, over 13 years, and finally here we are later on. My mother and I went to a refugee camp in Nyack, New York, a beautiful building that was donated by a Jewish family for the purpose of refugees of all different countries to have some R&R. And there, a lovely family, a mother and her grown, three grown children, kind of took to us and took us to the Middle West, where my mother found work, and I went to college. And many years later, I graduated, became a teacher, got married, had two children eventually, and that's the end of my story. Oh, and then that, that, that's a beautiful ending. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow, and that's, uh, I mean, that's that's really, really powerful. And uh, it's, so, it it's so sad that now we are to a place where well you give this speech to schools and we're getting to the point where they're saying you can't speak to school children because you're mentioning Jesus 
and yeah, uh, right. which is harkens what you went through in Nazi Germany. Yeah, exactly. And what really gets me is, first my school over there kicked me out because I was Jewish, and now the authorities are not are, are preventing me for speaking in a school. Because and when I first, <laughs> yeah. When I, in 1993, yeah. when I went to, um, I went up north from living in the Twin Cities then, uh, to, I had totally retired and went up there. I had lots and lots of speaking engagements in the schools, mm -hmm. but not anymore. Only the Christian yeah. schools will receive me. Wow, wow. That's, that's, that's powerful. And it's just, I'm so thrilled to have you, and uh, we just... Uh, really thrilled and if you ever write another book or ever want to come back on the program in the future we would really be honored uh to have you really this, well, this is I really it's been a privilege to have you well thank you and thank you for letting me tell my whole whole my whole story you are the first interviewer recently that had permitted me to tell the whole thing and i appreciate oh. that so much you're a wonderful interviewer and god bless oh. you for it Thank you, thank you. That's so kind of you. And, uh, you know, we just, uh, we love to talk about the people and things that make America great. And uh, you certainly, you certainly fit the bill. Um, well, thank so, you very much. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, and God has really worked uh, in your life. It's, it's, uh, it's a beautiful testimony. Yeah, thank so you. So we want to share it. We want to share this story with uh, as many people as possible. And so we hope you would uh, forward it around to uh, all of your friends and connections uh, via social media, and we will certainly do likewise. Well, thank you. Yeah, so, and God bless you. It's, uh, again, it's just okay. such a privilege. And uh, we, we, you know, we hope to, uh, I hope we can kind of stay in touch with you and, and check up on you from time to time. Well, thank you. That's very sweet yeah. of you. I appreciate yeah. it. Oh, okay. And God bless mm -hmm. you. And when you talk Bye. to Christian, please, please tell Christian it's so nice to hear you say that a man named Christian lived up to the title. Yeah, he did. And you yeah. know that evening when they were marching us off on that long march overnight, I mm -hmm. had a chance to escape that night with a group of people that I met before I went to camp. And Christian held my hand when I came to him and I said, why don't you come with us? And and he looked at me and my best friend, Hella, and he said, no, Anita, I won't let you go. Go walk with me. Go on the march with me. And if he would have let me go, I would not have been alive to tell the story. Wow. So he, wow. God used him to save my life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So God bless him, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, you give him, you give Christian regards from the hatchet man. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're not a hatchet man. You're a lovely person, and God bless oh, you. Oh, well, that's so sweet. Well, the hatchet is not for people like you, man. The hatchet is for folks <laughs> that need need a hatchetation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. God bless you. Bye-bye. Oh, God bless you, too. You have a very nice evening. Thank you. You, too. Bye-bye. Oh, okay. Bye now. Well, okay, America, that was uh, one really, really powerful testimony there, and just we are so thankful that uh, 
Miss Dittman was able to share this with us, and uh, we want to thank you all out there also who are listeners, and uh, and we ask you to just sh- please share this story with your friends and all your all your contacts, and uh, share this story on all of your uh, different types of social media. Uh, this is a story that needs to be told, and again, the book is Trapped in Hitler's Hell. You see the book right there. Uh, maybe uh, purchase the book for someone, and uh, it, it would make a great gift, a very, very powerful uh, story of, of what God can do. So uh, God bless you, America. Uh, and again, uh, Miss Dittman, God bless you and Christian uh, and your entire family. And uh, folks, uh, we'll just see you next time. Uh, hopefully you'll check us out on our local uh, Richmond, uh, Virginia, Central Virginia station, WLEE. Uh, God bless you, Richmond. Have a wonderful evening. They say this cat brother Craig is a bad brother. Hush your mouth. But I'm talking about Hatchet. Then we can dig it. The really real deal with Brother Craig, the Hatchet Man, every Wednesday afternoon from 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern on WLEE 990 AM. Who is the Hatchet Man? Where is the Hatchet Man? Who is this Hatchet Man and where can we find him? Okay, okay, Brother Craig is the Hatchet Man, and you can find him on 990 WLEE. The really real deal with Brother Craig, the Hatchet Man, on 990 AM WLEE. And now, no more water, you guys. Please! If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life, and I had to start again with just my children and my wife. I thank my lucky stars to be living here today, because the flag still stands for freedom, and they can't take that away. American, where at least I know I'm free, and I won't forget the men who died, who gave that right to me, and I gladly stand up next to you and defend her still today, cause there ain't no doubt.